Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. You know, people come and people go. I don't know if it's just my gray ear, my gray hair that's been sort of saying that in my head, like I'm getting a bit older and I'm starting to experience some of the shifts that happen in life and the changes that happen. Um, but most recently, one of the people that went for me was my alley neighbor. Um, he's a guy that I've known for the last five years, and um, over the course of those five years, we, I mean, we ate together, we laughed together, we mowed lawns together and shoveled together. Um, we just connected. And it's kind of amazing what happens if you are faithful in a place, imperfect, but faithful, and present enough with others, and even hospitable just to say, hey, you can, you can be a part of my life. And I'm curious about what's going on in yours. And as I did that over the course of about five years, it led to some incredible moments with this guy who lived across the alley. Um, so much so that as he got into the van um, and following a big truck and, and drove away, he said goodbye to me last week. And it was just like a, like almost oddly emotional scene where he like, I had meant something to him and he had meant something to me. And, and we realized we were parting for maybe forever. And it reminded me, as I reflected on that, of the other incredibly emotional moment that I had with this guy. Because at one point, I invited him to read the Bible with me and with some of you. Some of you may have been there that evening in my living room. It was around Easter time a few years ago, and we sat reading through the story of the last moments, the last days of Jesus' life. And I think we read this passage here, and as we read it, my neighbor started weeping across the living room. It was as if he had entered into the story itself. Maybe he hadn't heard it for such a long time, but, but the, the, the description of, of, of Jesus' suffering, both the sacrifice of it and the beauty of it, the power of the language just sort of caught him. And he couldn't help but tears rolling down his cheek. And it sort of is true that in order to get this, we have to really enter in almost as if we were there. This is what one of the New Testament scholars who comments on this passage says. He says, only if we enter into it, which we can hardly do without fear and trembling on our own part, will we understand the human depths and therefore the theological depths of the story. So what I want to do is pray again that we would enter in to this moment, and then even the scenes that follow over the coming weeks, to sort of be with Jesus as he endures what's going on in his betrayal and on the cross. So Father, would you help us, like my neighbor, to be moved by these stories in such a way that we identify as if we were there watching, there seeing, so that we might know the human depths and even the spiritual depths of what's going on here. I pray for extra grace upon us today. Amen. So hey, I want to show you in this garden picture a few things about faithfulness. 
I want to show you Jesus in the way that he's faithful in prayer. I want to show you how he's faithful under persecution. And then I want to show you how even he's faithful in the fulfillment of all these prophecies that he's seeing sort of cascading upon this incredible moment in history. Okay, so number one, he's faithful in prayer. Right? Jesus was faithful in prayer, showing us the kind of relationship that you and I were designed to have with God. If you look at this, this should be a window into what it should be like for us to know God, to pray to God, to wrestle with God. This is, this is a picture into the best of relationships with God the Father, of course, because it's God the Son here, wrestling in the garden in prayer. And here's what you see as you sort of look back on this, 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 this scene. You see, faithfulness does not always look like strength. Right? We, sometimes we have this picture of faithfulness as like, this person's strong, like they're all, they got it on their own, and Jesus is incredibly faithful here, but he shows it in weakness. I mean, this kind of raw, snotty, like probably tears and sweat dripping down upon him, right? It's a dependence that characterizes Jesus, not independence. It's a, I don't know if I got this, not like, I got this. Jesus shows his faithfulness in an incredible dependence. It reminds me of um, one of the things I've been turning over in my head from Dr. Chip Dodd, who does a lot of work um, when it comes to emotional health. He, He says this, we were born crying out. We were born reaching out. And we were born taking in. That's what a baby does. They cry out, they reach out, and then they literally they take food in. That's all they do. Um, but we were, were meant to be like that, though we grow up. And instead of continuing to cry out and continue to reach out, continuing to sort of take in the things we need, which he sort of runs the parallel, is what Jesus is saying when we, we ask, we seek, we knock. That's where the kingdom is supposed to work. We're supposed to ask and cry out. We're supposed to seek and reach out. We're supposed to knock, and the door would maybe be opened, and even the table where we could be fed and nourished would be there. So this, this sort of parallel between what, what, a, what a little child knows and what the kingdom of God is like is what Jesus is actually after. But instead, what we think of maturity is, is independence, self-sufficiency. I got it all together. I don't reach out. I definitely don't cry out. That's not what it means to be mature. But Jesus shows us the opposite. He shows us, in contrast to Peter, right? Peter's bravado is like on full display. He's like, I will not deny you, Jesus, never, right? Even if I have to die with you. And then here's Peter in his bravado sleeping. He's like, I'm cool. Like, I'm sleeping. Jesus is what? In contrast to sleepy, Jesus is wide awake. Right? Peter's resting easy. Jesus is just toiling, sweating, praying. Peter's trusting in his own word. I got this. Jesus is wrestling with God's word, wondering, is this the plan? Is this for real? Peter ignores temptation like it's not coming. Jesus sees it coming a mile away, and he's readying himself to face it. Faithfulness looks a lot like this prayer that Jesus prays. Maybe it's familiar to you, this phrase, if you've been around Christian circles, this phrase about Abba, 
which of course is sort of the intimate word for father in that day. It's one of the few places in the New Testament where where the original word is translated, even though we have a version now in English. And it's actually one of two places in the New Testament where the writers of the New Testament say this only gets said by the Spirit's utterance, by the Spirit's power. There's two things that you can know when someone says it and says it from their heart. That's the Holy Spirit who's doing that. And there's, here's one. Um, it, it's it's um, Jesus Christos, right? So it's Jesus. It's, it's, it's Jesus is Lord. Whenever somebody says from their heart, Jesus is Lord, that's the Holy Spirit bringing that about. And the other one the Apostle Paul says is whenever one, someone cries out and says, Abba, Father, that's the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament writers are saying there's something really powerful in this phrase about Abba Pater. What is it? Well, the word in its original context has this sort of intimate sense, this affection and devotion, which I think is picked up in our modern context. So much of what you see about the Father in modern Christian circles, of course, is that, that God loves you, that God is a affectionate about you, that God joys you, sees you, knows you, loves you, that you, if you believe in Jesus, are the the daughter of the Father. You're the son of God, your daddy. That, that That is true, but it's only partially what's going on here. Because it's not merely that, that God has affection for you that's contained in this phrase. It's that God also has authority over you. Do you see it? This is what we're missing from the original context, right? Which, granted, patriarchal society, but God chose to reveal what he was like as a father within a society where to be a father was to have all authority. The final word. And so something is being said about the way God is and the way that we're supposed to relate to him as father here between Jesus and his Abba, Pater. That we are supposed to know deeply the affection that God has for us, but also the authority he has over us. And isn't that what's going on here? But this phrase, this tender phrase, is revealed in what moment? In the, the snotty garden, right? In the, the tear-filled garden where Jesus is staring down the cross. That's where this phrase comes. There's something about that moment that we need. Because if we're to grasp what God is as Father, it must mean, according to Jesus, that he is not merely the lover of your soul. Yes, he's the lover of your soul, but he's also the leader of your soul. Not merely that he has affection for you, but that God is the one who gets to say what he wants of you. He's the one who gets to speak, this is my will. And Jesus is there in the garden showing us that God the Father is so good. God the Father is so trustworthy. God the Father's love and God the Father's leading is so amazing that he would follow to the cross. What have you said to God, I only want your love in. I don't want your leadership in. Where have you said, I only want your affection here so that I can do my own thing with a full heart? Rather than, yes, I'm willing to receive your authority, what you speak in this area of my life. Where have you said, no, I just want good vibes, rather than a father who gets to say, this is my will for you. 
Jesus was faithful in prayer. And he shows us in this incredible moment what we should have in a relationship with God. And to be honest, fighting for a relationship with the Father is difficult. Some of what we could learn here from Jesus is just the reps that he gets, right? He gets some reps in prayer, even in the middle of the night, trying to sort of connect with the Father and discern what he wants for his life. And we need the same. If we're going to remain faithful in prayer and have that kind of close relationship with God that we were designed to have, we've got to seek him in prayer so that we too could learn to pray, Abba, Father. Okay, not just faithful in prayer. Jesus is faithful in persecution. Right? He's faithful in persecution, showing, showing us the kind of restraint that we're supposed to have though we are maligned or though we are misunderstood. Jesus shows us the kind of restraint, the kind of self-control that we're supposed to have even when we feel the heat. Here's what we see, okay? Look at this. Jesus says in verse 42, 41, and he, and he came to them a third time, are you still sleeping, taking up your rest? It's enough. The time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came. Jesus was betrayed into the hands of sinners. Betrayed into the hands of sinners. Do you, do you think about that moment? Jesus just sat at the table with his friends, knowing full well that one of his friends, who he's walked with for years now, is going to sell him out for pieces of silver. And in fact, if you look at the seating chart for that meal, it's pretty clear that this dude, Judas, was probably next to him. Judas is next to him. Maybe Peter's the other side. I don't know. He's close enough that Judas can reach and dip in the same cup that Jesus was dipping in. I mean, if you knew that, if you knew at Christmas dinner... Somebody right next to you is just about to sell you out completely. If, I mean, bigger than Christmas dinner. Like, think about the biggest meal you've ever eaten, and one of, your, one of your close friends is about to sell you out and betray you completely. He knows full well that's going on. And if that's not enough, here they come in the middle of the night. He's been physically, emotionally, spiritually in it, in prayer. And here rolls up Judas. Rabbi! For a hug? A kiss on the cheek? I can't imagine. What do you have to possess to restrain yourself in a moment like that? Knowing your betrayer is literally right there. Incredible control that Jesus has. And one of the most formative experiences for me um, in ministry in my 20s was seeing a couple of my mentors, they were leading and I was not leading, get heat from God's people. Got some serious heat from God's people. Got misunderstood, got misrepresented, got slandered, maligned. And to see the, the sort of sadness, the sorrow that those men felt, to see just the, the silence, and, and to see, okay, these, these men, they, they follow Jesus. They know him. And so there's such a confidence that I didn't, they didn't need to be defensive. But they were trusting themselves and even the organization they were leading to the Lord was amazing. 
There's a kind of restraint when everything around seemed like confusion and chaos. And there's a kind that looked a lot like Jesus, being able to watch them go through those things. But here we have perhaps the darkest moment. The, the, the light hasn't gone out yet. That comes on the cross. But this is surely one of the darkest moments. My favorite commentator on this book, as I've studied through it myself, is a guy named Mark Horn. He's a Presbyterian pastor. And listen to what he says of this moment. He says, Israel's best and brightest, whether within the Jerusalem system or even within Jesus' counter-movement, are all seen at their worst and darkest. Jesus alone is faithful to the end. That's it. I mean, betrayed by friends, denied by others, scattered. The the Jewish priesthood who's supposed to uphold what's right and true and teach people how to connect and commune with God. Cover of night. I mean, they're packing heat in the first century style, taking him captive with swords and clubs. This is not a fine moment. But in the darkest moment, Jesus shines incredibly bright for who he really is. The irony here just sort of builds all the way through to the end with these weird little anecdotes, right? So like Jesus gets taken, captured, and then somebody, we find out it's Peter from another of the Gospels, chops off the ear of the high priest. You're like, what's going What's going on? Well, it's, I mean, certainly metaphorical, right? Probably did happen because in another account, we see Jesus touched the guy and healed him, right? But if anything, what's going on here is it's evident that the, the ears of God's people are completely closed, so much so that they could be chopped off. That's how well they're working. And the only remedy, of course, is the touch of Jesus as he heals and continues to go faithfully down the path that he's going. Or even this weird thing about the cloth. I know everybody wants to know what's up with the naked guy running in the garden, right? But like, what's going on is there's another garden pointed at. And Mark here is laying out, just here, just let's go back to the other garden where they rejected and denied the God who is their father. And now they're here in another garden rejecting the God who is the son. There they had physical nakedness and felt full shame. And here they have metaphorical nakedness and should be ashamed just as well. But the curse is about to be undone. Healing mending, wounds, shame, sin, forgiveness, salvation, all is cascading upon this incredibly dark moment, all because Jesus is faithful in the face of persecution. And then he's faithful in prophecy. Speaking it, like he's been telling people what's going to happen and now it's happening, but he's also faithful in the sense that he's fulfilling prophecy all the way through the scriptures about this exact moment. Jesus is faithful in prophecy showing us that what we need most in times of trial is to rest in the promises of God. That's what he's doing here. He's resting in the promises of God because he knows that God the Father had promised to deliver his people through a suffering servant. And now he's come to see, I am the suffering servant. And it's precisely because that cup that's overflowing for him and waiting for him at Calvary is ahead of him that he knows that he is about to bear our iniquities. He's about to die for our sins. And yet, he knows even more clearly that there is one who's going to deny him, just like Judas had. 
down to the number of pieces of silver, 30 pieces in all, foretold in the Old Testament. He knows that the disciples would all flee, the shepherd being hit and the sheep scattering off on their own. And he knows, probably more precisely, that the arm of the Lord, the might, the strength of the Lord, would be on display in this darkest moment. He knows that because of what he does, the righteous one will be counted as unrighteous, and then many will be able to be counted as righteous in his place. That's what Isaiah 53 says. And I believe that's what he's clinging to. He's clinging to all of these prophecies, reaching their fulfillment, going, yes, the king had to go to the cross. He had to go to the cross. And soon when he gets there, he's going to claim those desperate words of Psalm 22 about God forsaking him. But I don't think he's there yet. I think he's probably steadying himself with Psalm 23. Familiar one to us because we sing a song that reflects it. I think he's steadying himself with Psalm 23 because he's not met with death yet. He's on his way, but he's heading into the valley of the shadow of death, where the death and darkness of all sin and brokenness is closing in upon him. In this moment, where despair and confusion and darkness settles, is not that unfamiliar for us. In fact, I know some of the people in our church are in that moment right now. I know some of the people in our church have been through moments like that in the past. And I know some of the people in this room will go through moments like that in the future, where literally the shadows of the valley begin to close in upon them. Are you there? Have you been there? Even though Jesus sat at the table with his friends who turned into his enemies, he trusted in God's promise. Even though Jesus walks into the very shadow of death, he trusted in God's promise. And even though there was a literal cup overflowing for him, which ended up being the cup of judgment on Calvary, he rests in God's promise because he gets the whole point of the cup, which is the Jewish idiom of saying, hey, stay here a while. It's it's the way that a friend says at table, hanging out with you, don't go anywhere. I want you to stay with me. I enjoy your presence here in this way. This is my will for us to stay. And Jesus, therefore, is faithful, hearing the Father say, this is my will, stay in this lane. He's faithful in prophecy. And what do we know? He did so by resting in God's promises. And because Jesus was faithful when the Father said, stay with me, because Jesus faithful when the Father said, stay with me, he could rise and say to us, live with me. He could rise and say to you and say to me, live with me and be faithful, even though you're misunderstood and maligned. Live with me. And be faithful, even though you encounter trials of all different kinds in this life. Live with me. Be faithful, even though you're surrounded by darkness at moments in your life. His faithfulness is the testimony of of King Jesus right here. It is the word of Jesus that in the darkest moments, sometimes you see the stars shine the brightest. And Jesus, he's dazzling here in faithfulness for you and for me. 
and saying to us, have you scattered? Will you follow me again? This scene makes me go to one of my favorite written prayers. Um, I have used this off and on in the course of walking with Jesus. It's called uh, The Valley of Vision. It's an old book of prayers. feels like you're reading an old Bible, um, which sometimes is good for the soul. And I want to read to you the opening prayer in the book. It goes like this. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights, hemmed in by mountains of sin, behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, and that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. So let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen. I'm going to move to response. And think about the faithfulness of Jesus and the valleys of our own lives entering with him into those deep and dark moments. And I want encourage you to do that a few ways. I want you to pray. The best is you're able. Pray this Abba Father prayer. Seek the Lord in prayer. I want you to sing. Having heard from God, I want you to respond to him in song. Pour out your heart. Open your mouth to sing about God's faithfulness and glory. And then we're going to eat. We're going to eat a meal that reminds us of the faithfulness of Jesus, where he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he followed through. All the way to the cross, to the breaking of his body, and to the shedding of his blood, that we represent with the, with the juice, with the little wafer, as a way of nourishing our own souls and saying, yes, Christ was faithful. And by him staying with the Father, I can now live with the Father as well. Let me pray for that meal, and then I'll invite the, the worship team to come back up and lead us in song. Father, would you nourish our souls now? The, the elements, the, the wafer, the juice is small, but the significance is big. Would the simple act of remembering your death and resurrection bring about renewed hope in you? Would it bring about renewed commitment to faithfulness? And it would it bring about incredible joy, knowing that you long to walk with us through the most challenging seasons of our lives. And would we not scatter from you in those moments, but would we cling to you in those moments, trusting in your faithfulness, resting in your promise? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.